This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I've got the magic of blue tick. It is very, very impressive. And one of the things that it means is that you don't see everybody. It filters people out. Who does it filter? How'd you get one? It has no. Nobody has any idea who it filters. Nobody can tell what its logic is. Sometimes it filters. I mean, it might filter out my friends. It like filters out people I don't want it to have. No, it's very. It's not supposed to do that, but it does it very randomly. It doesn't work very well. So is the blue? Is in theory the blue tick? This is on Twitter. Most you don't have one, I do. I so much. I've applied repeatedly. But the count Arthur Strong famously can't have one because he's a fictional character. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah. That's true. So you have to, now what they do to get verified is there's like, there is like a form, that, an online form that you fill out and then you have to send links to published right. stuff or your public, you know, presence. And then you have to, and you have to do, you have to give it your birthday so it can verify that you're a human being and then it verifies you. That's for a bizarre way to yeah, verify all, you're a human being. Yes. Did you... The blue tick people only talk to other blue tick people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's like no rhythm. Yeah. It'll be like the VIP, it's like behind the velvet rope of Twitter, exactly, right? That's exactly. what I figured. Um, but it didn't work out that way. Because as I say, it doesn't really work. So then it cuts out the people I want behind the VIP rope with me. Or let's say all kinds of trolls. So it's not really clear to me what the purpose of it is, except to impress a handful of people who <laughs> care about who know what it is. on Twitter, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, who notice? Yeah. It's yeah. niche. <laughs> right. Um, let's go. Let's go. Hello, and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. You join us around a table in the dining car of the Orient Express, courtesy of Unbound, the website which brings authors and readers together to create something special. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound. And I'm Andy Miller. I am the author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And as from today's episode of Backlisted, I now wear glasses to do this because all the reading that I've done in the last couple of years has, uh, has left me basically worse sightless. So uh, joining us today are, we have two guests with us. Amazing. Joanna Walsh. Hello, Joanna. Hello. And we have Sarah Churchwell. Welcome back, Sarah. Thank you. Joanna is a writer and the author of books in a variety of formats, including most recently an experimental digital novel made in collaboration with the Google Creative Lab. Yes, and visual editions. And featuring illustrations by Charlotte Hicks. And that's mm-hmm. called what? It's called Seed, and it's very beautiful and, and somewhat sinister. Great. How did it differ composing that from composing one of your more traditional um, paper-bound I, books? I, I probably write a bit like that anyway, so I, t- I tend to kind of write in this as sort of fragmentary way, which um, it does add up to something, I hope, but, um, but, but it's quite, it's, it, in some ways it seemed natural to distribute it in um, kind of not in chap 
chapters, but in little kind of threads you can follow right. in different pathways yeah. and yeah. in a sort of slightly non-linear way. You can go forwards and backwards and sideways. And, and how can we can we access yes, it? We yes, can. It, it's free. It's online and it's seed-story.com. Yes, brilliant. And also, just to say about Joanna, three things. She has a new collection of stories, Worlds from the Words End, as in September. She was the founder of Read Women on Twitter, Mm -hmm. and you should follow that if you don't follow it. And she is a brunette. I am. Okay, so, and we're also joined, welcome back, to Sarah Churchwell, who has been sat on a stationary train in the middle of England for most of today. You've seen all parts of England, haven't you? You you, you were saying, isn't it? And Sarah is Professor of American Literature at the University of London, where she also runs the Being Human Festival. And Sarah is a blonde. <laughs> I am. <laughs> I, for listeners, <laughs> may be keen to know that I was once a brunette <laughs> and I'm now grey haired, as is my colleague. Uh, I, I, were you I, a blonde? I was never brunette? been blonde, I've always been. I've, uh, God, is it, that, is it not obvious? I had, used to have a shock of dark hair <laughs> and a shaggy black mane of a beard. But now I'm just a. Silver back or silver front. Silver back. <laughs> before, I, and before I ask John the traditional question, I just want to say thank you to a listener whose name is Anna. Uh, she is in Stockholm in yeah, Sweden. Big in she, Sweden. She might be listening to this now. I hope she is. And I just want to share, she wrote us a lovely message on Facebook, and I just wanted to read it out a little bit. She says, Dear Batlisted, I just wanted to tell you how your podcast not only has improved my intellectual well-being <laughs> on so many levels, has also improved my health. Since I made the decision that I'm only allowed to listen to your podcast while at the gym, the hour I spend there is the best of the day. I've always loathed training. It is usually so boring. But thanks to Batlisted, I am now walking and running the treadmill with a smile. Well, Anna, that sounds awful. <laughs> and I, I frankly can't, can't approve of that. But I'm very pleased. I, uh, you know, I feel like... This feels logistic. feels like I need to say, do, do other listeners listen to us in other... <laughs> In, in unusual spots, yeah. let us know. Yeah, do you send in your... <laughs> um, so, John... Well, we're here to talk... Joanna and Sarah are here to talk today about Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which uh, we, should, we should say, which I don't think we had said. Gentlemen Prefer Blondes by Anita Luce, and also the f- sequel, But Gentlemen Marry Brunettes. Yeah. But before any of that, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a small book, but a big subject. But before we get to Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and Anita Luce... Let's ask the traditional question. John, what have you been reading this week? I have been reading a book called The Fact of a Body by Alexandria Marzano-Lesnovich. She is a trained lawyer, creative writing fellow now. It is her first book and it has been getting very good reviews. I have to say it was, uh, it's difficult to summarise neatly, but it is about, it's a memoir, but it's also the, I, I guess, a kind of, uh, Capote-like uh, reconstruction of a the murder of a child in Louisiana in the uh, in the early 90s, the murder of uh, Jeremy Gilroy by a uh, a man uh, in his 20s called Ricky Langley, and it starts with um, uh, 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 the Alexandria arriving in New Orleans to work for Clyde Stafford Smith, who is the lawyer that works tirelessly to, um, to get um, the death row cases commuted in, in Louisiana. 
and she watches the confession of Ricky Langley, the confession of the murder of the tape, and is possessed by uh, I mean, powerful, visceral urge to see this man put to death, which is absolutely, completely against everything that she hitherto believed in. She was, she was going there to go and help. And understanding that visceral reaction is really what prompts the memoir. And the memoir really is a memoir of uh, how she was abused by her much-loved grandfather as a child. All of this makes it sound very grim, and it is pretty grim in places. I yes. mean, horribly grim in places. But I think it, it, the balancing act between trying to understand her own emotions, but also trying to understand both the mother of the child that was murdered, who goes into court to testify for Ricky Langley and to say, you know, she doesn't want him to, 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 be, to, to, to receive the death penalty. To understand how, how she does that. And to understand also Ricky Langley himself. It's a, it's a, a real act of, I think, of, of, of sort of imaginative reconstruction, but also forensic. I mean, she goes through every single 30,000 sort of pages of documentation to try and understand what happened. And without giving too much away, I wouldn't say that there is necessarily a, a, a neat resolution to that. But what there is, is an in, I think it's an incredibly brave and powerful bit of writing. I mean, the comparisons that have been made are Capote, as they always are if it's true crime. Shot in the uh, Heart. Uh, Shot in the Heart, Michael Gilmore, which, yeah. I, you know, is it, it, it's hard to say, is it successful? It's successful on this level. It really, really makes you realise that understanding complexities like abuse and murder and paedophilia, that these things, there aren't any simple answers. I, I thought the best, I've read it as well, because yeah. when Sarah Perry came in to do Backlisted a few weeks ago, she was really raving about the book, and she has a background in the law. Yeah. So she was sort of saying, this really, one of the things that this book does very well is describe process in such a way that feels right to me. I must say, I think the thing that I liked most about the book was the sense... You're right, John, it's sort of... The grimness in it is the idea that the law is a yeah. sort of rather useless compromise when confronted with something as complex as the truth. Yeah. So there's various bits. She sets up a scene at the beginning where she's talking about... Is it probable cause? Have I got that right? Yeah. So she's talking about who is to blame for this event? Who is the person who started this? It's very hard to say. There's no easy way of saying. But what the law has to do is pretend there is a way, an easy way of attributing blame to one person and heaping everything on them. So I, I, I thought it was good, yeah. Very good. So uh, just, uh, just this paragraph, which more or less kind of takes up what Andy was saying. She writes, What I fell in love with with the law so many years ago was the way that in making a story, in making a neat narrative of events... It finds a beginning and therefore cause. But I didn't understand then that the law doesn't find the beginning any more than it finds the truth. It creates a story. That story has a beginning. That story simplifies and we call it truth. Which is the sort of, I think that paragraph is kind of the core of what she's trying to do yeah. uh, with, with the book. And I, 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 think she, I think she does, she achieves... I think she achieves that aim, and there are some. I mean, as I, I think I said, there's some horrifically difficult passages to read, and there's a haunting quality, because I guess you know, you, it, yeah, life's complicated. <laughs> I was talking to um, that's that book is published in uh, the UK by Macmillan, and I was talking to the editor 
who's publishing here, George Morley. Yeah, she George was saying, it, she said one of the great things about the book, in her opinion, is many books that cover this area would, you know, the, the, the idea is that they would attempt to say to you, look, anyone can be a victim. That's not what this book does. No, this absolutely. book says anyone can be a perpetrator. Yeah. At some level. Yeah. Not everyone is guilty, but the context uh, 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 that people find themselves in can lead them to uh, do things yeah. that in other contexts they wouldn't do. And it does not explain why Ricky Langley killed yeah. Jeremy Guillory. It does not explain why her grandfather abused her. It does not explain why her parents... I mean, that's the other thing, why her parents refused. They just changed, they changed their living arrangements so that the grandfather didn't have access to the two girls in the family. But they didn't ever talk about it openly. Mm -hmm. they, 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 there, was no, there was no open discussion of it. So none of those things are explained, but they are the way she unpacks them and the way she lays them. I mean, it's, it's yeah, it's, I, I think in its, own, in its own way, it's a sort of an exemplary book. And um, I mean, I think I... I, I Prizes... Yeah, very likely. That's what I thought. Andy, what have you been reading? Well, I was going to talk... You've been having fun, haven't you? Uh, yeah, I have, I have. I was going to talk about one book, but I'm going to talk about that on the next podcast instead, because instead I'm going to talk about a collection of poetry called Bedouin of the London Evening by Rosemary Tonks. And I read this about 48 hours ago, and I was so seized with enthusiasm for it that I thought, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to capture the you moment of foist, enthusiasm for it. Foist your enthusiasm I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, on the rest of And I tweeted a poem, which I'm going to read now, and it was written, published in the late 60s, and it's a poem called Dressing Gown Olympian. And I just thought it was wonderful. I'd seen someone on Twitter refer to Rosemary Tonks as the Jean Rhys of 60s London poetry. <laughs> now, I know, Joanna, you are a great admirer of Ms Rhys. Yes. Uh, so I, that instantly, I thought, well, that's going to be... We're all united. I think I was yeah, Rose was a Rose. Ms Rhys. So I, I saw you in your dressing gown when I read this poem. I don't know why, Andy. But <laughs> I, all I'm saying is, just, let's just say, I, let's just say I, I have stuff invested in this poem. <laughs> OK, so I'm going to read this out. OK, it's called Dressing Gown Olympian. I insist on vegetating here in moth-eaten grandeur. Haven't I plotted like a madman to get here? Well, then. These free days, these side streets, mouldy or shiny with their octoroon light. Also, I have grudges, enemies, a religion, politics, a new morality, everything. Kept awake by alcohol and coffee... Inside her oriental dressing gown of dust, my soul is always thinking things over, thoroughly. <laughs> no wonder my life has grandeur, depth and crust. <laughs> ah, to desire a certain way of life and then to gain it. What a mockery, what absolute misery, dressing gown hours, the tint of alcohol or coffee. Am I an imbecile of the first water after all? Yes, I think I can claim, now that all this grandeur, depth and crust is stacked around me, that I am. <laughs> <laughs> I read that, I just thought, whoa, that's my favourite thing that I've read for, for a long time. So, uh, I'll say a little bit about Rosemary Tonks. There's a photograph on the, on the cover of this book 
Bedouin of the London Evening. It's published by Blood Axe Books. If you were listening to this and you have a chance to go and look it up on the internet, go and look it up. It's a photograph of Rosemary Tonks taken in 1966 by Jane Bowne of The Guardian and The Observer. And it is a fantastic picture of her. She has on spectacular trousers, <laughs> or trues, as they would have been called at the time. And do you know where this photograph was taken? I do not. It was taken no. in the coffee cup in Hampstead, uh, which is still there, really? which was a proper bohemian 50s coffee house and has survived there. It still looks like that inside. And Rosemary Tonks wrote two volumes of poetry, both of which were published in the 60s. She wrote five novels, I think I'm right in saying, maybe six novels. And she vanished in the late 70s, and she died in 2014. And she refused to allow any of her poetry and any of her fiction to be republished. She underwent a, a significant religious conversion. Wow. So she burnt all her manuscripts and she burnt all her work. She saw her work as being fundamentally not what Jesus would have wanted her to do. And one of the things that are about her that is so fascinating is... Uh, 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 she, For instance, when I was reading her biography, she created a, a, a sound piece in the mid-60s with the assistance of the great Delia Derbyshire. And as I was reading, I was thinking, of course she, of course she did. Why, why, didn't I, why, why don't I know about this? This is such an interesting thing, such an interesting figure. And she was, two of her poems were chosen by Larkin for his mm-hmm. Oxford Book of 20th Century English century. Verse. Mm-hmm. She vanished, she totally vanished. And copies of the two volumes of her poetry, both of which are gathered in this collection, Bedouin of the London Evening, were selling two or three years ago for £1,500 each Amazing. because there, there was no way of getting to read them. And they how, were, how have they been republished if, if she...? She died in 2014, in early 2014. There had clearly been some efforts made by uh, the editor of this collection, let's give him credit, whose name is Neil Astley. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the editor of this collection, Neil Astley, had been in touch with her, although she had mostly ignored him. He'd read her diary. And she'd stayed that religious? Yes. She said, she said she refers to him in her diary, says another postcard from Satan today. (laughs) Okay. Because she saw that she saw anyone reminding her of the... Yeah. (laughs) We all feel that way sometimes. Anyone reminding her of her previous life, which she deeply repented... Mm. And she would, so even into her 80s, she could be found at Speaker's Corner handing out Bibles. She stayed in London? No, she went to, she moved to Bournemouth. Right, but she'd just Um, make the occasional, have the occasional. Yeah, so Neil Astley had found out, had had got in contact with her, and regularly contacted her anyway. When she died, uh, he then, after a series of discussions with her family, persuaded the family to let this work. It really is. All I can say is, I I booked a Jeremy Noble Todd, uh, tweeted a page from a novel of hers called The Bloater, which is written in 1966. It's a description of of what it was like to work in the radiophonic workshop at the BBC, which was enough to make me, I have booked a day at the British Library to go and and sit there and read it because she just seems incredible. and I cannot recommend this collection highly enough. Uh, half the poems in here made my hair curl, and the other half I didn't understand. That's, all, that's always the best combination. So I'm going to read another one, and then we'll get on to the main event. But this is one of the ones that Larkin chose for the Oxford Book of 20th Century English Verse. 
This is from her first collection, and this was published in 1962. It's called Story of a Hotel Room. Thinking we were safe. Insanity. We went in to make love. All the same idiots to trust the little hotel bedroom. Then in the gloom. And who does not know that pair of shutters with the awkward hook on them, all screeching whispers? Very well, then. In the gloom, we set about acquiring one another, urgently, but on a temporary basis, only as guests, just guests of one another's senses. But idiots, to feel so safe you hold back nothing because the bed of cold electric linen happens to be illicit. To make love as well as that is ruinous. Londoner, Parisian, Someone should have warned us that without permanent intentions you have absolutely no protection. If the act is clean, authentic, sumptuous, the concurring deep love of the heart follows the naked work, profoundly moved by it. I mean, that's just spectacularly good. And there's a wonderful thing she says in one of the rare interviews that she gave in the 60s where she says... People have been reading Baudelaire for 150 years but haven't learned any of the lessons of it. <laughs> and so what you could, one way you can read it is to see... We're trying, to, trying try. to find a way of talking about the modern city yeah. in the sixth London in the 60s, particularly in a kind of symbolist way. Mm-hmm. It's, I, I can, I'm so right. enthused I, by it. I, please, please, if you... Like all the things that we've been talking about on here, you will love that collection. So Rosemary Tonk's Bedouin of the London Evening. Excellent. Now. Now, follow that. <laughs> well, we briefly, I think we have to dip out at this moment, as we now do on the podcast, to uh, uh, an ad for a, uh, uh, a very, r- really long and, I think, fantastically ambitious book called The Story of John Knightley by Top Taylor, which is a kind of, um, it's a sort of, uh, modernist, high modernist account of the rise, fall, and rise again of a, a musician called John Knightley. It's a sort of extended meditation on uh, creativity. And Tot Taylor, the author, is here to talk about it. My name's Tot Taylor, and I've written my debut novel. It's quite a long one of the story of John Knightley, which is about how. Someone who's extremely talented at genius level, born 1948, so he sort of comes to flower, comes to sort of fruition in the mid-60s. But uh, as with so many people, particularly in the music business, they have a very, very fast rise. And if they don't have a burnout, then they have a kind of slow fade. But basically their gifted period, what I refer to in the book as their spirit wind, may have lasted just two or three years. And my idea was, okay, well, what are they doing for the rest of their lives? You know, being geniuses. How does a genius cope with not not having adulation and not being able to fulfil their promise? That's what the novel is about. The character of John Knightley is very much 99% of the book. What he is thinking, how he operates, how he sees himself what he wants to achieve, how disinterested he is in other people. It's not based on 
any particular character. It's not an amalgam of other characters either, which people keep telling me it is, but it isn't. It's not based on myself either. I went to great lengths to make this person, um, to make his circumstances and his situation very different to my own. It's not based on observations either. It's based on a kind of a vision. I, I guess the person that I did think about quite a lot was John Wesley, um, the Wesleys. I always thought that the Wesley brothers, you know, who began Methodism, basically they started a religion from nowhere and had a very fast rise, sort of more or less forgotten now, except in churches. But you have to remember that the Wesleys could go to Cornwall, part of it is set in Cornwall, um, and they could preach to 30,000 people in a pit, in a clay pit. Quite phenomenal, you know, like a, a, a rock and roll band now. Okay. Nowadays, the capital's people are groovy. Their clothes are groovy and their outlook is groovy. Even the streets are groovy, with groove-ridden names like Bond Street and Wardour, Portobello and, of course, Carnaby Street, the grooviest of all. The magnificent Carnaby is probably the happeningest thoroughfare anywhere on the planet at this very moment. Doesn't that fact alone make you want to be here with all these fabulous characters and streets and names and occurrences? It should do, if you have anything to offer, that is. Because what this all means is that London is suddenly a place of immense opportunity, a city of significance and enterprise, one big happy cake you can all bite into. The story of John Knightley by Tot Taylor is published by Unbound and is available from all good bookshops and unbound.com. Backlisted listeners can get a special discount by entering the code BACKOFF at checkout on unbound.com. Now it's commercials. <laughs> right, well, we're back now from uh, the swinging 60s and uh, the, uh, the, the, the wilds of Cornwall to early 20th century New York and Paris and London and the... <laughs> London is really nothing, though. <laughs> and the, the central of Europe, was, indeed. This completely compelling novel, I think. I hadn't read Gentlemen Prefer Blondes before. Mm -hmm. This is not going to be the last time I read it. It's mm -hmm. one of the, I can't remember ha laughing as much reading a book <laughs> for a very, very long time. I mean, it's, it's, it's gorgeous. So where do you want to start, Andy? Who, who, we've taken turns and ask, maybe Joanna start, and wh when you first okay. encountered... Anita Luce and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes? It must have been via the movie, um, which I expect how mo most people come to it. I, I didn't Absolutely. know it was a book. And I can't remember the precise moment at which I discovered it was a book and read it. I must have been in my 20s. But, um, you know, I, I, I honestly, from then, it, it's kind of been there. It's permeated my consciousness and my language mm. and um, a, a lot of other things too. Yes, for I, I don't know. There it is. Yes. For a small book, I mean, there's so I'm much to say I'm still waiting for one. <laughs> yes. Right. yes, well, the first thing I, I thought about when I was reading it, the first thing I think is, is, is this kind of very, very hypnotic and um, enticing idea of the two women, um, which is usually sort of talked about often by men. I was thinking of Flaubert's uh, Dictionnaire des Idées Reçues, where he talks about he has this, this, this it's a very amusing dictionary of aphorisms of um of stock phrases and he has an entry on blondes and he says blondes see brunettes mm -hmm. and then so you look you you scroll along and you, you look at the entry on brunettes and it says brunettes see redheads <laughs> and then you you go much many many more pages further in and you you get to redheads and it says redheads see also blondes 
brunettes. <laughs> this kind of kind of idea that you can have the sort of Snow White and Rose Red, the two women who are somehow because they look slightly different, are yes. are kind of representing two different um, two two different sides of something or two different ways to Laura. to live. Um, Juliet and Justine, even um, to go to Dessart, I was thinking, uh-huh. you know, Juliet being kind of Lorelei, I think the the, the person who presents an appearance of um, of living exactly as um, society would wish her to, but doesn't obey any of the rules. Um, and uh, Justine, who generally wants to be good, but um, doesn't meet a very good end. We should say Lorelai Lee, the blonde, Dorothy Shaw, uh, the brunette in these books, played by, as you talked about, the Howard Hawks film. Mm-hmm. You know, the film is made 30 years after the book is, is published, but, but, but is, of course very famous in its own right. So Marilyn Monroe is Lorelei Lee. an adaptation of a musical. Yeah, that's right. Which was and an adaptation of a stage, stage play. play. And yeah. Jane Russell is, is Dorothy yeah. Shaw. But, but it's worth saying that the, that the musical version is really, um, at most, it's, a, it's inspired by the novel. It's a very, very loose adaptation, and they've updated it to the 50s. So it's a very, very different story. And I think that's, I think that's different the, tone, actually, that is the more first important. thing that strikes you, leaps out and, and grabs you around the throat. And it, 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 it bears quite a glancing yeah most uh, superficial resemblance resemblance to the the film so Sarah when did you can you remember when you crossed paths with Anita Luce or crossed paths with this book yeah I um, my uh, field of study is the 1920s and 1930s um, in terms of literature but I've also uh, since I was a kid been obsessed by uh, old Hollywood movies from the 20s and 30s and so I actually first encountered Anita Luce as a screenwriter when I started to get interested enough in how movies were made that I was starting to notice directors names and screenwriters names and um, and then was reading around it and, and discovered that uh, she took credit um, for the rest of her life uh, for having helped to bring in the Hayes Code, the yeah. um, the censorship code of Hollywood from 1934. Yeah, because yeah. of her movie The Redheaded Woman with Jean Harlow. She actually replaced Scott Fitzgerald as we, a screenwriter on we, Redheaded Woman. Whoa, so I'm getting ahead. We are going to come on to that. So, we are gonna come but to all, that. so that's actually how I got there. So yeah. what happened was I she, she'd been in the so back of my mind as a, as, a child. as a kid. No, it's it's not it's not taught in America. At least it wasn't when I was growing up. But it it's, did disappear. It definitely it? disappered, and the movie was still there. So I saw. I saw the Marilyn Monroe movie and I thought it was silly and it didn't really do anything for me. Mm-hmm. And then when I was starting to study the 20s and 30s, and then particularly because Gentlemen Prefer Blondes came out the same year as The Great Gatsby, and I particularly work on Scott Fitzgerald, and there's a, there's a remarkable moment. Um, Anita Luce wrote a preface for Gentlemen Prefer Blondes 40 years after it was published, which is in most of the paperback versions right. called The Biography of a Book. And in it, can I, is it too early to read? No, because no, this is what no, got me do. into it. So she says, she talks about, uh, and I think we'll come back to, to this more than once, um, because she says a couple of interesting things about how she came to write this, this quite remarkable novel. She gives a, a, a little precis of the story, and she shows how dark the subject matter actually oh, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This very satirical vein that she's operating in. And then she says, in fact, if one examines the plot of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, it is almost as gloomy as a novel by Dostoevsky. <laughs> when the book reached Russia, this was recognized, and it was embraced by Soviet authorities as evidence of the exploitation of helpless female blondes by predatory magnets of the capitalistic system. The Russians, with their native love of grief, stripped Gentlemen Prefer Blondes of all its 
it's fun. And the plot, which they uncovered, was dire. It concerns early rape of its idiot heroine, an attempt by her to commit murder, only unsuccessful because she is clumsy with a gun. The heroine's being cast adrift in the gangster-infested New York of Prohibition days, her relentless pursuit by predatory males, the foremost of whom constantly tries to pay her off at bargain rates, her renunciation of the only man who ever stirred her inner soul of a woman, her nauseous connection with a male who is repulsive to her physically, mentally, and emotionally, and her final engulfment in the grim monotony of suburban Philadelphia. Given the above material, Anita Luce goes on, and you can just hear her laughing as she writes this, right? Given the above material, any real novelist such as Sherwood Anderson, Dreiser, Faulkner, or Hemingway probably would have curdled his reader's blood with massive indignation. Scott Fitzgerald would have, and indeed, he did make his readers shed bittersweet tears over such sad eventualities. And it was when I read that sentence that I thought, 1925, she's absolutely right. This is the comedic version of The Great Gatsby. This is The Great Gatsby, but told in a comic vein. And she Brilliant. saw that instantly. So that's how I came at it. And then, I, and then I read it, and I just laughed my head off. That's why Edith Wharton famously, <laughs> yeah. to the extent to which it may or may not be tongue-in-cheek, but Edith Wharton famously says... This is, this is the great American novel. This is the great American novel. And of course, the, the Edith Wharton novel, to compare this to, if people, and in fact, it's one you should do if you haven't, and if you haven't, don't let anybody else do it because I'm coming back and doing it. Um, I'm, I'm staking my flag in this. I've bagsied this one. Um, We're going to do a separate stand called, strand called Churchlessness. It's Edith Wharton's novel, Custom of the Country, which is undeservedly forgotten and is a very similar book about an unscrupulous woman who sleeps her way to the top Have you? and is completely will rewarded you, you, for you, sleeping her way to the top. Now, live on air, will you vouch for that choice? Will I vouch for the choice of it being oh, a, a good one for backlisted? Backlist. Yes, yes, definitely. Yes. It's hilarious. Yes, it's quite fun. All right, yes, it's very good. Yeah. Thank you both. Yeah. Joanna, okay. have you got a little bit that you could read us to, give, to well, give people a flavour of what yeah. I'm going to illustrate the the great the great sadness and seriousness. <laughs> the Russian. You know, when, you were, when you were talking about it being um, the Great Gatsby, by other means, though, I was thinking when you were talking about Rosemary Tonks and Jean Reese, I was thinking this is exactly the story of all those Jean Reese heroines. Mm, yeah. uh, they're chorus yeah. girls. Yeah. They're um, they're staying yeah. in cheap hotels. But the thing is, if only the heroine of Quartet or The Voyage Out had a blonde friend, <laughs> the story would have been entirely. <laughs> Different. That's so um, good. Yes, yeah, so Jean Reese would have been a completely different person. <laughs> I'm just going to fall under the table laughing you know, at that idea. Do you know what, that great thing about Faulkner, like that yes. really patronising oh, note yes, yes, about, yes. about the book, and he, he said, said but I, he really wished he'd invented Dorothy. Yeah, exactly, because she wow. was the great, uh, she was a great American character. It was really interesting the, the patronising notes that mm. this book received, yeah. because it was the best-selling book of 1925. So we've already said it came out in the same year of The Great Gatsby, but The Great Gatsby was pretty much a commercial flop. Disaster, yeah. um, it certainly just disappeared, whereas German for Blondes was the best-selling novel of the year, and it put a lot of very serious male writers' noses very far out of well, joint. We'll, we'll come back to that, <laughs> yeah, yeah. because I think there's some interesting stuff to say about f any phenomenal book in terms of its sales tells us something that we may not previously have identified about that the, moment. Th that moment, exactly. I totally agree. So let's... Yeah. 
Joanne, let's have a little bit okay. now. Please. I was going to read a little bit from Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and it's Lorelei's diary. Um, it's mid-May. She's travelling in the central of Europe to get an <laughs> education, financed by um, the Button King, Gus Eisman. The Button King, and, and many other places, apparently. He's trying to, he's trying to become the Button Certainly King of Vienna. Vienna. <laughs> he's, he's trying, but it's not working. And, you know, the thing is, I can't do an American accent at all, and I certainly can't do Mar- in Monroe, but what I think I can do is I can do uh, Miriam Margulies as the caramel bunny, <laughs> <laughs> and that's about the, 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 the most, the closest to a kind of cute voice that I can do. So do I'll just imagine that she was a she was a kind of jobbing actress from the West Country instead. Um, May the 27th. Well, I finally broke down and Mr Spofford said he thought a girl like I, who was trying to reform the whole world, was trying to do too much, especially beginning on a girl like Dorothy. So he said there was a famous doctor in Vienna called Dr Freud with why, who could stop all of my worrying because he does not give a girl medicine, but he talks you out of it by psychoanalysis. So yesterday he took me to see Dr Freud. So Dr Freud and I had quite a long talk in the English language. (laughs) So it seems that everybody seems to have a thing called inhibitions, which is when you want to do a thing and you do not do it. So then, you dream about it instead. So Dr Freud asked me what I seemed to dream about. So I told him I never really dream about anything. I mean... I use my brains so much in the day that at night they do not seem to do anything but rest. (laughs) So Dr. Freud was very, very surprised at a girl who did not dream about anything. So then he asked me about my life. I mean, he was very sympathetic and he seems to know how to draw a girl out quite a lot. I mean, I told him things I would not even put in my diary. So then he seemed to be very intrigued at a girl who always seemed to do everything she wanted to do. (laughs) So he asked me if I really never wanted to do a thing that I did not do. For instance, did I ever want to do a thing that was really violent? For instance, did I ever want to shoot someone, for instance? So then I said, I had, but the bullet only went into Mr. Downing's lung and came right out again. So then Dr. Freud looked at me and looked at me and he said he did not really think it was possible. So then he called in his assistants and he pointed at me and he talked to his assistants quite a lot in the Viennese language. So then his assistants looked at me and looked at me and it really seems as if I was quite a famous case. So then Dr Freud said all I needed was to cultivate a few inhibitions and to get some sleep. That's so brilliant. The two things that occurred to me while you were reading that, three things, is Miriam Margulies, excellent. The second thing is, it's like, like a lot of great comic writing, mm-hmm. it's very visual. That description yes. of Freud pointing, you, t- you get totally, you can tell that she was a screenwriter because she has that, the economy of saying, here's the image, little, little sketch of something. There's Freud talking to his assistants, you can really see it. The third thing is, and I, this is the highest compliment I can pay in some respects, when I was reading this, I was thinking, okay, you know what this is like? This is like, Woodhouse. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. This oh, yeah. It's the American Woodhouse. Absolutely. This has Absolutely. that rhythm and and what Douglas Adams calls says about uh, about Woodhouse word music. It has oh. those strings of, of But it um, also has the double layers of irony, right? Yeah, where yeah. where Lorelai is as silly as Birdie. Um, but she's also Birdie's inverse 
in that she doesn't have a good heart, right? So part of the joy of reading Woodhouse is that Bertie is ridiculous, but he thinks he's quite dignified, and he thinks he's quite serious, and he has no idea how silly he is. And then you're in on this double joke, right? And Lorelai is the reverse, which is that she does take herself seriously, and she thinks she's quite clever. And she thinks that she she's putting... She thinks she's good. And she thinks... Well, I'm not sure that she does, actually. I think that... I read it a little bit differently. I, know, I think okay. that she thinks she's putting something over on yeah. society. She, she's writing her diary to be read, she says at the beginning. So it's all a performance. And it's she says... Interesting. She it's says to Dorothy yeah. a lot, Dorothy will never... My friend Dorothy will never know how to act, which I always think is a nice loose uh, pun there, yes. that she knows. She, mm-hmm. She's manipulating everybody. And she's putting... Dorothy. She's got this performance of being what she thinks society wants her to be. And part of the joke, in the way that you were just reading... I, th- I think that's what she thinks of as being good though. Oh, well, I think she thinks she's refined. And that it doesn't matter. But I think she thinks she's putting it, I think she thinks she's putting it over on everybody and she doesn't realise how ridiculous she appears because of her mistakes and her malapropisms and all. So she thinks that she's being a refined girl like I and she thinks that everybody's falling for it. Um, Where even Dorothy, you know, so that's why Dorothy is such an important sidekick Mm. because Dorothy keeps coming in and she's the Mm. kind of touchstone figure who comes in for the reader and speaks truth to all of them Mm. and says things like, lady, you could Mm, no more ruin my girlfriend's (laughs) reputation than you you could sink the Jewish fleet, yeah. which I think has to be one of those moments where it's clear then that 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 in in Luce's mind and in Dorothy's mind, society doesn't fall for this. Laura, right. everybody knows Lorelai is a kept woman. Everybody knows that she's sleeping her way to the top, except Henry Spofford, who's even stupider than she is. Um, but she's, but she's makes, manipulating everybody. But the other person she makes me think of as a writer, though, who's writing at the same time, is Damon Runyon. Yeah, absolutely. And, yes. and his characters yes. also yes. have this yes. kind of double feeling of, um, of of wanting intensely to be res- respectable. Yeah, I, can't, I can't even say it in a Brooklyn accent. <laughs> respectable, something like that. And um, whereas they're all bootleggers and gangsters yeah, and murderers. absolutely. It's exactly but the same. But you were so, Runyon, Runyon is spawned. The Woodhouse and Runyon, you know, heads up to listeners... You know, if you you know, if you were to buy stocks in Runyon now, mm-hmm. they would come good a few months from now in backlisted terms. Is Runyon out of print? There, there is I've got a very old edition yeah. of yeah. on Broadway, yeah. Um, yeah. 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 which is well, a selection of stories from which is always looking. This is not, and this isn't, I hasten to add, I'm not diminishing this at all. This is the best thing I could ever say about any writing, is always looking for the gag. Yeah, absolutely. Right, where is the gag going to land in the rhythm of the prose? So, there's, a lovely, yeah. uh, there's a lovely little um, bit in the introduction by Jenny McPhee uh, to the, the Live Right edition, where she says, it employs and slams uh, modernist tropes. Stream of consciousness style, rightly penchant for wordplay, middle brow misuse of grammar, a girl like I, low brow vernacular. The prose, I love this, the prose is a cacophony of loopy cadences, alliteration, redundancies, oxymorons, malapropisms, mm. multilingual puns, homophones, innuendo, euphemisms, double entendres, and more. Through these linguistic machinations, Luz takes irony to a new level of complexity. Our expectations are repeatedly thwarted. We are hurled into a troubling state of merry destabilisation and pleasurable chaos. Under Laurelie Lee's gaze and pen, nothing is sacred, no one is safe, and it's all uproariously, uncomfortably funny. That's very good. Which is good, that's good, isn't it? So it gets that slightly... I'm just going to say a little bit about Anita Luce herself, because I knew very little about Anita Luce, and... um, I was very fortunate that um, Lee Randall, hello Lee if you're listening, Lee Randall very kindly pointed me at Gary Carey's biography of Anita Luce, which is terrific mm. as, a book, as a book about Anita Luce, but as a book about Hollywood in, mm-hmm. in the early years of Hollywood. Wonderful, wonderful book. Anyway, so Anita Luce, who is born in 1889... 
1888, depending on yeah. who you believe. <laughs> That's right. That's right. She's born in California. She's one of three siblings. Her father was variously a newspaper editor, a theatre manager, and a drunk. She was a all the same time. Yeah. She was a child actress and at a young age wrote a play called The Inkwell, which is still produced. Wow. She sent a screenplay to a, a film studio on spec in 1911 for which she received $25 straight away. And she's like 22. And her third screenplay, The New York Hat, was produced and it was directed by... D.W. Griffith. D.W. Griffith, starred Mary Pickford and Lionel Barrymore. Her first screen... Do you know what her first screen credit was? This I don't is remember, so good. I should know this. Oh, yeah, I, yeah, I've had this bit gone, yes. It was Macbeth yes. oh, by William Shakespeare and Anita Luce. And she did say that she thought I mean, D.W. D- 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 Griffiths would I have mean, given her first billing if she'd have asked. And she worked with Griffith a lot. She did the subtitling for... For, or the intertitling mm-hmm. for Intolerance, and she's around for the making of Birth of a Nation as well. 200 and so bef- movies. She yeah. wrote 200, 200 movies. Yeah. And, she, and so before she writes Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, she's already got a reputation as, as famously Photoplay magazine calls her in the early 20s, the soubrette of satire. <laughs> Um, it's also, and, uh, it's also worth just throwing in how she was extremely attractive, right? She was really, really yes. pretty and had this little gamine look. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's the early days of, of that of Photoplay magazine, of that kind of publicity. Right. So, she, so she's, uh, she's one of the yeah. first celebrity authors as well, which is worth throwing in there because so, she was so pretty. So she makes a transition from uh, silent films to the talkies. And we have a, a clip now of her. This was recorded oh. near the end of her life. This is the late 70s or early 80s. And I, I found this clip. And um, there's a thing in it that Joanna will really like, and there's a thing in it that Sarah will really like. Oh, so amazing. let's listen to the clip. Go. I wrote 200 films for D.W. Griffith before sound came in. I had quit movies at that time because they were very profitable and I was rich. <laughs> and uh, I quit. Then came the crash, and I had to go back to work. And when I went back to work, I was sent for by Irving Thalberg and to write a sound movie. And uh, he had had a property called A Red-Headed Woman, which he had given to Scott Fitzgerald to, drown, to make a scenario of. Now, Scott, with the most idiotic intention in the world, wanted to be a movie writer. (laughs) With all his great talent, with his genius, with his success, he only wanted to write a movie. And he wrote a movie of a red-headed woman, and it was deadly. (laughs) And so Irving sent for me, this was in 1926, and uh, he said, will you take this script and uh, make it funny. So I did. <laughs> so, so I mean, that's terrific. Yeah. She wrote jokes. She put. She says somewhere. She's put. She said I put jokes in everyone. She was a script doctor across all of MGM's mm. movies, and her job was to put jokes into people's mm. movies. She, she once put a joke into a Marx Brothers movie, <laughs> and apparently Groucho Marx. Uh, I supplied a line, and I think it was Groucho who thought a while and said. Do you really think this character would say something like that? 
<laughs> and she says, well, you know, as if a Marx Brother character had any logic. <laughs> so we should so say a little bit about Gentlemen Prefer Blondes mm. and the success of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. So it began as a series of short sketches serialised in Harper's Bazaar, and the first indications that that she was on to something. This thing which had been written as a kind of... She did it to silly, wind up H.L. Mencken. H.L. Mencken, right? Yeah, she basically... It had been written as a silly kind of mm-hmm. half-thought-through thing. It quadrupled the, the um, circulation know. figures mm. of Harper's Bazaar overnight. Mm. Um, it's, the book is published in 1925. It's a huge bestseller, as you, as you said. It's followed up in 1928 by... Um, but gentlemen marry brunettes, and but I, I want to come on to but gentlemen marry brunettes. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to say about Anita Luce. But basically, Anita Luce then has a, this long, sparkling career um, as a screenwriter, as a Hollywood personality, and in the 60s and 70s as a memoirist mm-hmm. yeah. in the kind of David Niven, yeah. the Moon's Balloon yeah. tradition, right? And those books are as funny as David yeah, Niven's. Yeah. If you like the Moon's Balloon, her books are hilarious. But so, so we were talking earlier, Joanna, about. Mm-hmm. Um, but Gentlemen Marry Brunettes. Yes, yes. Well, I, I think we both said it was a better book, and I think, I think it is. I um, think it is a better it's, it's, book. It's, it's funnier, darker. it's more varied. It's it's, um, yes, it's, it is. The thing that happens, though, is we're told we're going to sort of hear Dorothy's story, but we never hear her voice. In, mm. in fact, less even than um, in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, because she has... Because it's it's set in the past tense, it's her story of her rise to kind of like her rise to rags really via riches again. Um, and I, I find myself find myself wishing she'd written another book that Dorothy had really written because of course her her tone of voice is completely different and her wisecracking um, attitude to life. Uh, I would love to have read a full length book of that. Mm. Well, I just want to read a very just a couple of paragraphs from the the second chapter of But Gentlemen Marry Brunettes. And because this is backlisted, I chose this bit because I, I think our listeners will appreciate it. So, again, I can't do Marilyn Monroe or Miriam. I'll go. <laughs> I can only do slightly louche estuary. Yeah. <laughs> you decide for yourself, listeners. Polyester voice, anyway. Well, I soon found out that the most literary environment in New York is the Algonquin Hotel, where all the literary geniuses eat their luncheon because every genius who eats his luncheon at the Algonquin Hotel is always writing that this is the place where all the great literary geniuses eat their luncheon. So I invited Dorothy to accompany me and go there at luncheon time. But Dorothy said that if I wanted to meet Honeybrows, capital H, capital B, she was going to a literary party that was being held by George Jean Nathan at a place in Jersey that is noted for serving the kind of beer that is made without ether. (laughs) <laughs> and, it is prohibition, of course. And Mr. H. L. Mencken, Theodore Dreiser, misspell, Sherwood Anderson, Sinclair Lewis, misspell, Joseph Hergesheimer, and Ernest Boy would be there. So I said to Dorothy, if they are so literary, why do they go to a place like New Jersey, which is chiefly noted for being inartistic? <laughs> <laughs> and the only reason that Dorothy could think up was on account of the beer. But I finally decided to go because some of them do write quite well-read novels. I mean, the, and, and the joke within a joke there is that she, that Luce was uh, gr- very friendly with H.L. Mm. Mencken. That circle of authors round that she's just described yes. there, she was part of that circle. So mm. she was never part of the Algonquin circle, the Dorothy Parker circle, but there was a kind of alternative group that she mm. was she And was she did occasionally of. attend lunches at the Algonquin, so she knew whereof, uh, whereof she spoke. Yeah. But it's, so she, she always claimed that Gentleman for Blondes was written as 
um, as, as John said, as a way to wind up um, Mencken because she said that he he preferred a witless blonde to yeah, yeah. a very clever and beautiful brunette like herself. I actually think there's reason to question that and to wonder whether, because you know Mencken and George and Nathan were editing the Smart Set, which was this very influential magazine, and I actually suspect that she sent it to them as a submission. And then Mencken sent her this really insulting letter that she reports in the preface where yeah, she yeah. says, he said to send it to Harper's Bazaar where it would be lost among the ads and it wouldn't offend anybody. And, um, and so I think she's really enjoying her triumph yeah, over yeah. Mencken here, because yes, yeah, she's winding him up, but also that then it went away and it was this huge commercial triumph. So she's, she's, she's poking fun at a lot of people um, along the way. I, at some point, um, I'm, I'm going to insist that you let me read Lorelei with an actual American female <laughs> accent. <laughs> Do it, it now. doesn't have to Do be right now. now. Do it now. Okay. Do it now. Okay. So this is one of my favorite um, scenes and, and this has already been alluded to because this is the time when Lorelei actually does resort to violence. <laughs> So then I told Major Falcon about the time in Arkansas when Papa sent me to Little Rock to study how to become a stenographer. I mean, Papa and I had quite a little quarrel because Papa did not like a gentleman who used to pay calls on me in the park. And Papa thought it would do me good to get away for a while. So I was in the business college in Little Rock for about a week when a gentleman called Mr. Jennings paid a call on the business college because he wanted to have a new stenographer. So he looked over all we college girls and he picked me out. So he told our teacher that he would help me finish my course in his office because he was only a lawyer and I really did not have to know so much. So Mr. Jennings helped me quite a lot and I stayed in his office about a year when I found out that he was not the kind of gentleman that a young girl is safe with. I mean, one evening when I went to pay a call on him at his apartment, I found a girl there who really was famous all over Little Rock for not being nice. So when I found out that girls like that paid calls on Mr. Jennings, I had quite a bad case of hysterics and my mind was really a blank and when I came out of it, it seems that I had a revolver in my hand and it seems that the revolver had shot Mr. Jennings. (laughs) He became shot. He became shot. It's the best use of the it's, passive voice in yeah. all of literature. It's, it's, that's the thing. It is so funny and it's so good and it's so fresh. It's so but also, fresh. You know, what about the, there's a kind of, so I was saying that the book was, you know, phenomenally successful in its era and also sets up a kind of, um, what's the sort of feminist reading of this book? It's really fascinating. It sets up an archetype which hadn't been identified before, which is then slavishly followed throughout the century, right? It's the first buddy movie. I mean, she, she, she helps invent that. Yeah. And it's these two girls yes. facing off against yes. the world. And the two of them have each other's backs. Although they have quarrels sometimes yes, about Dor- what kind Dorothy of men they should go off with. Very quickly to um, Lorelei's menage with Mr. Spofford once they're married. Because um, they're, they're, what I find very interesting is the bits where she keeps... Lorelei throughout the first book um, keeps almost getting married to people because she has many rich admirers who pursue her. But um, at, a, at, a, at, a, at various points, she, she sort of stops and considers that it might be not so exciting to live with them in the long term. And more profitable um, to sue them for breach of promise, yes, which she does yes, more than once. But also I'm interested in the fact that Lucy's making no... You know, presumably this was much more, I don't know, shocking, but I don't know. But there's no moral judgment on... You know, Sarah, mm. you were reading that very funny description by Luce many years later of what the plot is, mm. but when, when it comes down to it, you're looking at the reason why these quote-unquote great writers like Wharton and Joyce are reading this mm. and responding to it is it's funny, but it also seems to say something about 
America. Well, There's no moral judgment by Luce on what these characters are doing. Henry right? Spofford, when he's censoring his movies, um, <laughs> Lorelei says that she realises that he doesn't really ma- mind so much what happens to a girl, so long as she is not enjoying it. <laughs> so, yes. You know, yes. Is, and that, yes. That, that being the main thing. So the main thing not being that kind yeah. of... And of course, that's the, that's the moral of the Hayes Code, right? So when she writes Redheaded Woman with exactly the same morality, in which a woman sleeps her way to the top and gets rewarded for it, the, the, the moral forces of America were so outraged that they created this 30-year censorship system of Hollywood that said exactly that. Bad things, people could do bad things as long as they were punished, but they couldn't enjoy them and they couldn't get rewarded for them. So adultery could happen as long as you were punished. It's the Madame Bovary model. Yeah, yeah, as yeah. long as you die afterwards, you can have an affair. But there will be no having <laughs> affairs and then, you know, g- getting remarried and living happily ever after, which is yeah. what Luce's heroines Another tend more, to do. Another more modern pairing that I was thinking of, in fact, when I was talking about these pairs of, of women at first, um, was actually the fat slags from Viz. We do exactly what we like <laughs> and have a fantastic time. And they're also blonde Sharon and brunette. Tracy, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sharon Tracy. That's, that's genius. Absolutely genius. Um, I was just on the feminist on the feminist thing, which is obviously she she gets quoted as being anti uh, women's lib, mm. but what she says is actually a bit more, as you'd expect, a little bit more nuanced. Uh, she says, what do you think of women's liberation? So she says, the two most important executives I knew in the movies were Mary Pickford and Lillian Gish, and they did much better business because of their golden curls and other executives. Mary stacked up the biggest fortune anyone ever made in films, and Lillian Gish knew more about lighting and camera technique than any man I know. She did it for herself. I've been done in by both men and women. I don't have any preference, but I'm afraid they're giving the gag away. I think women can get a lot further by covering up and going underground than by waving a flag. And then she tells this great story. There was a big group of very beautiful lesbians in Hollywood, quite a number of them. I got dragged to a cocktail party one day and they were all there done up in chiffon and hats and being very elegant. And in walked Elsa Maxwell in a suit with cuffs and a necktie. And one of them said, oh, look at Elsa giving it all away. (laughs) (laughs) But of course, that's exactly Lorelai's attitude, right? Is that's how Lorelai wins, is that she doesn't give it away. Um, She does know what she's doing. She is manipulating everybody, but she understands that her power is sex and that's what she uses. And she uses it to trade up. <laughs> okay, not you. <laughs> well, Lorelai exposes the conditions by which women live successfully or unsuccessfully. Um, and, you know, thinking of another kind of person who's, who's used that kind of diary form, confessional form, I was thinking of Chris Krause mm. and I Love Dick, where she says, uh, why does everybody think that women are debasing themselves when we expose the conditions of our own debasement? Mm. Although she's not doing it by the debasement route because that would be um, to be to be sad about it. Mm. She's, she's being funny about yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. As is Chris, in fact. Yeah. Of course. To, to me, the most feminist thing about this novel on a really, really simple basis and what makes it so enjoyable for me to read over and over again is that at the end of the day Lorelai and Dorothy are friends and they mm-hmm. are a united front and it's them against the world and although Dor- they are all, you know Lorelai's always always after Dorothy because she thinks she's not making smart enough choices she mm-hmm. keeps falling in love with handsome men who don't have a penny and she keeps telling Dorothy she really ought to you know get somebody who's going to support her and Dorothy thinks that Lorelai really shouldn't be manipulating people in quite the way that she is and she shouldn't be marrying men that she doesn't love just for their money um, and yet they have each other's backs and mm-hmm. and they protect each other through the through all of these sorts of uh, uh, you know shenanigans and chicaneries that they get up to. There's this amazing double cross that they do in Paris mm-hmm. with this, this diamond tiara, oh, yes. and they and they just completely have each other's back but, all the way through. And, it's this kind of great con team. I'm so happy, very happy myself at the end of the novel. She says, I'm so very happy myself because after all, the greatest thing in life is to always be making everybody else happy. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think that's pretty, pretty good place. Pretty good place for us to stop. Uh, thanks to Joanna Walsh, to Sarah Churchwell, to producer Matt Hall, and thanks once again to our sponsors, Unbound. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at Backlisted Pod, Facebook uh, uh, Backlisted Pod, and on a page on the Unbound site, uh, unbound.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another show in a fortnight. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Thank you. You can choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.